This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm Hello, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 Triple R's weekly all sorts of kind of stuff show that aims to keep on asking questions until the answers are forthcoming. <laughs> a uh, <laughs> Pretty broad. Bush is my name and uh, it's nice to be back in the seat after a hiatus last week. The magnificent Adam Grubb sits across from me. How are you, Adam? Quite well. It's Sarah making all the noise though. Yeah, it's a rickety chair. Yeah. You're bashing everything around. Yeah. You need an oil can. Now, now you're quiet. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Colsey? <laughs> now you can speak. Now, come on. I'm good. That's the ticket. I I'm sorry, I didn't realise that my microphone was on and I was getting organised. The thing with these mics, this is what I've found, is if you move your sort of face like slightly to the side like that or slightly to the side like that, it doesn't pick up very well. But if a mouse takes a piss on cotton wool in the corner, <laughs> it'll grab it. And, and if you're rattling your chair like this, um, it'll grab it. That was pretty unprofessional of me, but I'm not paid, so that's okay. Um, someone who should be paid and is worth his weight in gold and other precious metals is Jed McCarthy. Hey Bushy, hey Sarah, hey Adam, how are we all? What's the news? Good? Your heads are... This is not a great thing for radio because it's a visual thing, but Jed has um, taken on ten dudes and one. Yeah, one of them got in a lucky punch. Yeah. Either that or it was the glass door I walked into. <laughs> Let's go with the ten dudes you defeated single-handedly <laughs> in the street. I'm going to hand across to you, Adam Grubb, to uh, have a quick t- an introduction to what we're following up on from last week. But if you find tonight's topic a little bit heavy... Guys and girls out there up front, stay tuned because towards the end of the hour, we're going to just start reviewing our favourite imported snacks, such as ramen noodles. Yeah, Colsey? Yeah, we've got our first ever uh, noodle review. Noodle review. I hope awesome. it's the first in a long tradition. It's going to take the edge off the peak oil apocalypse. <laughs> 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 so let's, uh, let's talk about that, Adam. What's yeah, going on? Did, did you hear it last week, Bushy? We had Richard Heinberg on. He is a senior fellow with the Post Carbon Institute. Mm, fantastic communicator he is. Yes, and uh, he's written tons of books about our current reliance on fossil fuels, including ones with the happy names like The Party's Over <laughs> Yay. and The End of Growth and Power Down. And his latest book is Our Renewable Future, Laying the Path to 100% Clean Energy, co-authored with David Fridley, who is a staff scientist at the Energy Analysis Program at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories. Uh, and he's one of the, possibly the main expert on the Chinese energy system in the US, and he works with the Chinese government a lot. So a bit of a heavyweight. Mm-hmm. Both of them are, in fact. And... Now, if you didn't hear it last week, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast. But to give you a bit of a recap, we talked to Richard about the concept of peak oil, which is the idea that 
We've used oil, crude oil, to create the global civilization that we see around us. And we've had more and more of it year on year for decades and generations. But at some point, because we took all the easy stuff out of the ground first, it's getting harder and harder to get. We're having to go deep down, down, down in the Gulf of Mexico and we're having to process different grades of oil, tar sands and all the rest. So life is getting harder to access energy. And that means that there'll be a little bit less and less year on year, which is a, a change and a turning point of epic proportions when you consider that it's basically the lifeblood of our society. And he also talked about renewable energies and how currently they maybe provide about wind and solar, a couple of percent of the global electricity mix, mm. um, growing remarkably rapidly, but that's still a small percentage and that electricity is only 20% of the world's energy use. So it's, it's got a long, long way to go. Here's a little clip which I think summarised what he talked about last week. Modern industrial agriculture depends upon fertilizers made from fossil fuels. It depends upon herbicides and pesticides made from fossil fuels. I'm talking to you using my computer right now, and if I look at my computer, it's mostly plastic made from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are primarily sources of energy, and energy is what makes everything happen. Without energy, we can't do anything. And it's the amazing portability and abundance of energy from fossil fuels that enables the modern world to function. So the importance of fossil fuels in our lives can hardly be overstated. We tend to take that almost completely for granted. And we assume that if fossil fuels go away, other energy sources will just magically appear to take their place. But if you talk to people in the energy industry, people who actually you know, spend their lives working with um, energy sources, you're quickly disabused of that belief. It's going to be a very big deal to replace fossil fuels. So that's Richard Heinberg as he joined us last week on the phone from California. We're going to hear the second part of the interview now uh, as he talked about renewable energy very positively, but as he said, they're not as optimistic that it can maintain our current standard of life. Let's just square this with facts, though, that if you're following certain streams of media, you'll hear facts like, in one hour the Earth receives more energy from the sun than the entire human race uses in a year. Or, or you know, you just spend 10 minutes watching Elon Musk on YouTube. <laughs> you, you, it's, it seems there's a disconnect here with the with the challenges you're describing, isn't there? Or how how do we how do we square this these optimistic visions? Yeah. Well, of course there is a disconnect. Um, it's true that that the Earth receives an enormous amount of energy via sunlight, but almost all of that energy is already being put to use by you know warming the atmosphere and the oceans. Uh, driving the hydrological cycle, uh, driving the winds, the jet stream, and and everything else. I mean, that energy is already being put to use. What we're what we're talking about doing is capturing a very small proportion of that with devices like solar photovoltaic panels and wind turbines. But those devices have to be manufactured. 
They have to be manufactured using raw materials and industrial processes. They have to be transported and installed. And right now, all of those processes are done with fossil fuels. Now, it's possible to imagine a situation where we could use the energy from solar panels and wind turbines to extract the raw materials, run the manufacturing processes, the transport processes, the installation processes, so that it would be like a a bootstrap operation where we'd be using renewable energy to produce the infrastructure to make renewable energy. But that's not happening now. And it's going to be a while before it is happening. So if we want to transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, it's going to require our manufacturing an enormous number of PV panels and wind turbines. We're going to have to make that transition at something like 10 times the current rate at which we're introducing renewable energy infrastructure. That's if we're to maintain the same level of energy production, you're saying. We'd need to increase by that. It's already growing quite rapidly. It's already growing quite rapidly, but it would have to grow about 10 times as fast in order to avert catastrophic climate change, in order to meet the kinds of, of, of requirements that nations are agreeing to in order to keep the world at 2 degrees Celsius maximum. So we're not investing nearly as much as we need to currently. And if we were, we would also be having to invest a lot of energy in the energy transition, building solar panels, wind turbines, new industrial processes for for producing cement and steel that don't rely on fossil fuels, and on and on and on. Again, that would take energy. And most of that energy would be coming from fossil fuels as well, at least in the early stages. So in order to avoid a burst of greenhouse gas emissions from all this new energy production from fossil fuels to, to fuel the energy transition, we would have to reduce our use of fossil fuels for a lot of things that we currently take for granted including things like air travel. You know, we just have to write that off mostly in order to have enough fossil fuels to fund the energy transition to renewables. So, you know, this is just one of the, of, of the challenges that we came across in our uh, analysis in, in our renewable future. Altogether, our, our conclusion was you know, we're going to have to get used to using a lot less energy in the future. We're not going to have the kind of abundance of energy that we had in the 20th century where we were, were basically, you know, using energy to do things that in many cases didn't even need to be done. But, you know, it was just a way of, of growing the economy and, you know, making more consumer products in many cases that people didn't even need. There's a metaphor that I think I got from you, Richard, Yes. where you, you say that fossil fuels, they're a stored form of energy. And it's a little bit akin to, uh, we're, we're like the rich heirs of some fortune who have been spending our time partying. Whereas right. renewable energies are more like an income that you have to work for because it's just the annual energy budget provided by the sun. So it's a little bit like we're, 
we're, we're one of those rich heirs who have lost lost the family fortune. We're going to be surrounded by cheap plastic trinkets, <laughs> in effect, and um, wake up in a bit of a mess. And uh, it's time to go out and get a bit of a day job, isn't it? And so, life in a in an era, if we can make a transition to near 100% renewables, it will be different, not entirely or worse, as that metaphor might suggest, but let us know some other ways in which life is likely to change. Altogether, I think we're likely to have more localized economies. We've gotten used to globalization over the last, uh, especially the last two, three, four decades. Uh, And that's because we had cheap, abundant transport fuels. But as we try to replace those transport fuels with uh, electrified transport for shipping and aviation especially and also trucking, I, I think we're going to find that it's, we'll, we'll be better off actually just transporting ourselves and our stuff a lot less. You know, making things, extracting resources closer to where they're going to be used. So that's going to be a big difference in our, our way of life, our, our economies, our, our daily life, we're going to have to get used to a different kind of food system that's not only more localized, but also that's less dependent on petrochemicals for fertilizers, for pesticides and herbicides. We already have a name for that. It, we call it, uh, in, at least in, in most countries, organic. And, uh, you know, there are lots of, of farmers who already produce food this way, but it's it's the minority. Sooner or later, that's going to become the ordinary uh, uh, default way of producing food. We've gotten used to an economy that we call consumerism. Consumerism is is a way of maximizing the throughput of energy and materials in an economy. It's a way of making constantly making more stuff, encouraging people to go into debt to buy more stuff so that we create more jobs and more profits. Well, consumerism arose during the 20th century to solve a number of economic problems that we had during that time, including the Great Depression. You know, by developing a consumer economy, you know, we could have more economic growth. But a consumer economy really doesn't work on a finite planet running on renewable energy. We have to have a conserver economy where we're recycling, reusing, and repairing things rather than just throwing them away and replacing them with with new ones. So that's going to mean uh, some big changes in probably in our, our financial system in addition to you know, the way we organize our economy, rather than organizing it around publicly traded corporations, we may need to look more toward cooperative enterprises. And uh, and rather than depending upon constantly growing our investments with uh, with interest, we may have to look more to a kind of steady state economy where we, we have other ways of, of funding productive enterprises. Uh, in, in the book, you point out that at least from the energy transition perspective, um, not necessarily in the lifestyle changes that you're talking about, but that Germany's accomplished more towards the transition to renewables than any other nation because it had a plan. Right. What, what's Germany done and what do you think we in Australia or you in the US can learn from their example? 
Well, the main thing they've done is they, they set a goal and they've planned. Uh, in Germany, they call it the Energiewende. The, the energy transition is one way to, to translate it. And that really has its roots going all the way back to the 1970s and the anti-nuclear movement in the 1970s. So there's been this this deep-rooted and long-standing preference among the German people for renewable energy. And so in recent years, there's been an effort to to wind down the nuclear industry in Germany and to fund and support the renewable energy industries in every way possible, and and also to to prioritize local ownership uh, and local production of renewable energy over giant industrial combines producing the energy and feeding it into the grid. So this hasn't been completely clear sailing, uh, but nevertheless, it's enabled Germany to get a leg up over just about every other country in terms of the amount of renewable energy being produced. Now, in the United States, we see similar kinds of commitments in states and cities, but not so much at the level of the federal government. During the Obama administration, there was there were the beginning glimmerings, you know, of a of an effort toward overall energy transition. But we see much more happening, let's say, in in the state of California, uh, state of New York, and in cities like San Francisco and Seattle than we do in the country as a whole. In fact, of course, in the United States currently, uh, on a national level, we're seeing retrenchment. You know, we're seeing a, a national administration that is prioritizing more fossil fuel exploration and production. And this, I think, is going to be seen in hindsight, as an enormous tragedy and and waste of opportunity. Is the first step to regulate coal out of existence, would you say? Well, yeah, that's that's an easy one because we we mostly use coal for producing electricity. And we have other ways of producing electricity right off the bat. Um, I mean, even natural gas is uh, less carbon intensive than coal. But um, just about every other way we have of producing electricity is is uh, cleaner uh, than coal. So, yeah, that's that's the no brainer. That's that's the first thing we should do is just stop using coal altogether. And then in the electricity sector, after we after we get rid of coal, then we have to start thinking about natural gas because. Uh, natural gas is less carbon intensive than coal, but it's still a fossil fuel and it still produces ge- greenhouse gases when we burn it. So, Richard, you've written so many books on this topic. You must have bumped shoulders with a lot of international elites at this point in the world of business and in the world of government. Right. And, and, and the issues that we're talking about here of peak oil climate change and the challenges of transitioning to a renewable society it must be the biggest issues in the world what understanding do you get when you talk to people who are in power about how much they understand it privately um well rarely i come across uh someone in those sort of upper echelons who really does get it um they're they're few and far between, I have to say. 
mostly people in government and, uh, and, and people in, say, the banking sector and the financial uh, industries are completely clouded in their view by the, the apparent necessity of maintaining economic growth. They simply cannot imagine a future in which economic growth does not continue. And I think that really is a, an extraordinary hindrance to their being able to, to really engage honestly with these kinds of issues. I have had conversations with a few uh, investors and a uh, couple, of, couple of billionaires, uh, uh, one in the, in the tech sector, another in the, in the sort of financial management sector, who, who really do get these issues. Um, and even, even then, I think their, their deep involvement with industry and, and the economy makes, makes it difficult for them to, to lift their eyes above business as usual, to imagine what all of this means and the, the scale of the challenge and, and, uh, and how how daily life and the world around us how profoundly it it almost certainly will change over the next couple of decades in in many ways i think people who have less of a stake at the table have an easier time uh grasping these issues and making the kinds of changes in both in outlook and in daily life that will enable them enable us to, to adapt to this, this new reality that's headed our way because it's going to be a, a very, very different reality. We can see the beginnings of it. We, we can see that the world is changing in, in uh, deep and often disturbing ways already, but we're still just at the very beginning of this process of transition away from fossil fuels. If we engage with that process in a willing and creative and cooperative way, I think we can find lots of, of opportunities for actually making our daily life more interesting and better. But you know, if we if we put it off and we we don't take advantage of, of these initial opportunities, I think it's gonna look like a really frightening time for, for a lot of people. When when peak oil first came to my attention, I felt I felt the power of it as an idea. Mm. It's, it is very easy to understand, put in a nutshell, that energy is the foundation of growth. It's the foundation of our economies. And when you get more and more energy per year, you can grow. When you get less and less, you, you shrink. <laughs> Every, <laughs> everyone can understand that. And it felt like it had this ability to communicate it and to uh, have people at all different echelons of society from all different backgrounds from police to carpenters to geologists to politicians to go, ah, oh, that all, that makes sense. I can see how we're going to have to change our lifestyles to adapt. Let's, let's have a conversation about how to do that. <laughs> it may seem naive, but at the time it felt like the issue, the idea of it itself was quite explosive, really, Th that it could shake up our expectations of where we think the world's going to go and have these conversations that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to have. Now the idea of peak oil is, it, it sort of had its surprise factor. And 
some of those conversations started, but I guess they were more on the sidelines. Do you feel, <laughs> I don't know, do, do you feel that same sense of loss of that initial power of a new idea now that it's been propagated and in some ways remarkably forgotten? Yeah. Well, yeah, I can relate to that. Um, I think we're in kind of a, a, a lull right now as a result of uh, the sort of petroleum glut that came on the market over the last uh, five years or so. But as I was explaining earlier, I think that's a pretty short-term market phenomenon. And over the course of the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a lot of people scratching their heads and going, well, you know, maybe we should have paid more attention to that whole peak oil thing while uh, while people were talking about it. Um, <laughs> the sad thing is, of course, that in, in many ways it'll be too late. You know, we, we will have squandered our opportunities to make an, an easier transition to a, a, a life with a lot less oil and, and other fossil fuels. But, um, you know, be, better late than never. The longer we wait to wake up to this, this situation, the, the harder it's going to be. And so today, it's, it's today. So let's, <laughs> let's just take, take advantage of the opportunity now. It's a tiny bit depressing because you were saying that 15 years ago, <laughs> like that we have to seize at the moment today. Yeah, right. And many people did, you know. I mean, I, I think probably it's in the low millions of the number of people globally who became sort of peak oil aware during that, that period. Uh, let's just for the sake of argument say it was uh, three or four million people. Well, that's not a very large percentage of, you know, 7.5 billion. But nevertheless, a lot of those three or four million people are really intelligent and, uh, uh, you know, key voices in, in, I wouldn't say, you know, industry and government and so on, but in, in their communities. And I'm in touch uh, very frequently with people at, at lower levels of government, people who have have heard about peak oil and and changed their lives really dramatically uh who've taken their money out of you know speculative investment and put it into uh you know buying some land and, and keeping chickens and <laughs> and you know doing things that really make a lot more sense you know in terms of of lifestyle and and sustainability and so, you know, I certainly can't regret any of what we've done over the past 15 years. I wish there had been more than those three or four million who had, had gotten the message, but it's certainly a lot better than zero. Um, what do you and Janet do in your day-to-day -day life around this stuff? So you grow your own food and... Yeah, well, we don't grow all of our own food, certainly, um, but we, we try to, you know, uh, grow summer veggies, and we have about 25 fruit and nut trees. We have uh, chickens in the backyard and solar panels on the roof and, uh, and uh, hot water panels for our uh, solar hot water. We've insulated our house. We've, uh, we have a well for, for our water, and the, and the pump is run off of our solar panels, you know, on and on. Those kinds of things, anybody can do those. But what we've learned over over the years is that all of this takes time and investment. 
you know, if you if you become aware of these issues, you can't just instantly overnight convert your your home and your lifestyle to being sustainable and and uh, and post petroleum. It uh, it takes planning. And it takes uh, it takes it takes money. Whether you're moving from uh, being dependent on a car to having an electric car to to just using a bicycle and public transportation, that's that, you know those are those are big lifestyle changes. Or if you're moving away from a natural gas-fired heater for your house toward using an air source heat pump, maybe that's a three or four thousand dollar investment. All of these things take planning and they take some analysis. I think it would be really helpful if more people were just energy literate, if we you know, paid more attention to how we're using energy on a daily basis rather than just taking it for granted. If you do an energy audit of your own home and lifestyle and look at how you're using energy in, uh, in home heating and oil and transportation and uh, consumer products, you know, it's really eye-opening, and it's also you know, f- offers plenty of opportunities for you know, dramatically reducing your energy consumption and thereby saving a lot of money, and there- thereby also giving you lots of uh, lifestyle opportunities where you can downsize, have more time to yourself, and enjoy life more. That is something that we're very passionate about here at Green in the Apocalypse is that most of these choices which are necessary when we look at peak oil, climate change and the limitations that will probably be on us even if we are successful in making a 100% transition to a renewable economy, a lot of those lifestyle changes are very positive ones indeed and thank you for being an exemplary example of them in your (laughs) daily life, Richard, and for writing your um, many excellent books. (laughs) Well, I, I couldn't do anything else. It must be hard you. being you, though, looking at the solar panels and thinking about the rare minerals that are in them and <laughs> just being aware all the time of it, like all of the different angles to the renewables yeah. that you're using. That must be hard. So thank you for yeah. trying. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I know that you all are, are, are doing a lot as well and, and more than I am in many ways. So uh, good on you. <laughs> hey, um by the way, when uh, do you remember when uh, in two thousand and five there was the conferences in in Ireland? Sure. And uh, I was going around interviewing partners of energy nerds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I interviewed Janet. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, Sarah was my partner at the time. Our relationship didn't survive <laughs> me being an energy nerd, but our friendship did. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad your friendship survived. <laughs> Now it's the live us back oh, in the that studio. Was, was that awkward? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I probably should have cut that out. But um, that was the uh, the final part of our two show interview with um, rosy cheeked Richard Heinberg. <laughs> um, rosy cheeked energy nerd. Yeah, but uh, with some hard hitting energy realities, but ones which are worth taking in, and I think they've empowered some very worthwhile changes in our personal lives thinking about this stuff when we come back from the break we're going to talk about uh, peak ramen you are listening to a triple r podcast podcast etc <laughs> um we have been listening this evening to part two of a uh, 
a brilliant, I thought it was a very good interview, guys, with uh, one Richard Heinberg. I thought it was going to be a little bit more upbeat from memory, but it didn't, wasn't super. A friend of mine texted after last week and said he felt like he'd been kicked in the nuts. Oh, okay. So I think a few people might have had <laughs> and a, a second below. Bit of a nut kicking. Well, yeah. look, from time to time we do cover some um, pretty heavy stuff on this show. And if it be that you're feeling a bit untoward as a result of these things and you need someone to talk to, there is a crisis line that you can contact, that being Lifeline, 131114. There's always somebody on the line that you can talk to if you're um, having some rough thoughts and some rough headspace. Richard Heinberg, one of the key things I took away... Well, one of the key things I guess I've taken away from the last 20 years of being alive is the realisation that um, in a post-carbon world and a post-carbon economy where our availability of high-yield fossil fuels each year will, by its very necessity and uh, nature, be depleting, there are things that we will look back on fondly in the future. Um, Things that we will often go, oh, do you remember when we could get easy access to X, Y, Z? And this leads us, Sarah Coles, to ramen noodle <laughs> review. This is my eight-mile moment. Eight-mile moment. you got to take it. What, like, you what happened was the other night I was eating instant noodles and I was on the phone to Adam, so I started reviewing them oh, yeah. off the cuff, and it was genius. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> and there's a jingle, which I will now sing. Noodle review. Ramen, 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 ramen. Noodle review. Onion. And then it goes in. So this is a review of Shin Cup, which we won't be able to get after the apocalypse. Shin Ramen is the South Korean brand of instant noodle manufactured by Nongshim Company. You can Google Nongshim scandal and a lot of things will come up. (laughs) (laughs) Shin Cup is flavoured with chilli and beef and available at selected IGAs. It is a cup and it contains dried ramen noodles and a lone sachet containing beef extract, chilli and the following dehydrated vegetables. Scallion, hot pepper, and shiitake. You peel back the lid, you pour the sachet in, add boiling water. It is as far removed from cooking and food as you can get, I think. Shin cup broth is very spicy. In Korea, they advertise with a slogan which translates as Shin ramen can make a man cry. And in China, the slogan translates as You better know how to handle the spiciness if you're a true man. Bloody hell. So I must be a true man. Reviewers on the internet often refer to the broth in Shin Cup as harsh, but detractors aside, it is the highest-selling instant noodle in South Korea. (laughs) It is one of the top-selling non-Japanese ramen brands around the world. Shin Cup was invented in 1986. The packet noodles are a bit crap because they have to be thin and soft in order to cook in three minutes in just boiled water. Th- that's, mm. a, that's a generic problem with... <laughs> yes, it l- is. Not, not specific you to, give away to the product, texture. this one. Yes. Shin Cup is 68 grams, Adam, in weight. In Japan, you can buy a mini Shin Cup. In so two- minier than 68 grams. Yeah. That's pretty mini, For if the you people ask me. that can't handle 68 grams. <laughs> in 2011, they introduced a premium version of Shin Cup called Shin Ramyun Black. The premium version contains an extra seasoning packet, mm. but I'm not ready for that kind of self-respect yet. <laughs> World-famous Ramen Raider website has this to say, the veggies all sit at the bottom after a good stir. I really dislike that, but what can you do? What can you do? Do other brands I would say stir overcome it again, that issue? <laughs> yeah. On Amazon, there's 530 customer reviews of Shin Cup and 22 <laughs> answered questions, my favourite being... Is this product made in North Korea? I don't want to support a repressive regime unless the ramen is really tasty. (laughs) 
Our instant noodles the zeitgeist. Hop Dak, Melbourne author and editor, recently tweeted a photo of instant fur with the caption, public service announcement, instant fur is almost as good as the real thing, 60 cents. Oh, controversial. In Jeez. Japan, there is a cup noodle museum in Yokohama where visitors can pay tribute to Momofuku Ando, who invented cup noodle after seeing a long line of people lining up to buy food at a black market in post-war Japan. The museum's creator says, By showing that Mr Ando invented cup noodles alone in a small shack, we would like to tell Japanese children that ideas for great inventions are already there in your head, so try hard to make your idea a reality. Mm. Oh my God, that is so uplifting. And I began to wonder... As the world teeters on the brink of ecological collapse, isn't it nice sometimes to just pour some hot water into a cup? Made of polystyrene. C. <laughs> I give Shin Cup 6 out of 10 for flavour, mm-hmm. 1 out of 10 for embodied energy, 0 out of 10 for zero waste pioneering, mm. and 0 out of 10 for Borneo orangutan awareness. <laughs> Fair cop. But... I mean, what what out of ten in the flavor profile would it take you, as the Amazon reviewer? You know, had it had it kind of ethical limits with regards to oppressive regimes um, in terms of am- orangutan death. At what point would it become a regular? You know, does eight nine? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, flavor wise. Mm, I don't think so. Hmm. I'm going to take a high moral ground, even though I just <laughs> reviewed instant ramen on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know, I feel like that museum. It, it could actually be something that survives for generations into the future. I can imagine getting on a sailboat, my, you know, great, great offspring. Yeah. And getting and going to the great ramen muse- museum. Are we there yet, granddad? And, Not yet, son. And just imagine like the, just, you know, because what's our relationship going to be with like young people when we're like, you know, in our 80s and, and we splurged on all this stuff mm. and... And they didn't get to do it because they've had to live a more grounded, res- uh, renewable lifestyle without yeah. throwaway stuff. Do you th- will, will they? Will they hate us, or will they? Mm. Will, will they like think of us as gods? Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. There was a thing on ABC the other day, and it was there has been this interesting series um, called "You Can't Ask That," and they get various groups of, of different Australians. They might be refugees, they might be Indigenous people, they might be people with a disability, they might be transgender people, everything. But last week's edition was people who have lived past 100. And one of the questions they hit them up was, um, you know, what were the good old days like? And pretty much all of them kind of said, they weren't the good old days, they were terrible. You know, and, and they kind of emphasised, you know, whoever told you they were good old days was scamming you because... Yeah, no, it was really hard. Like, you, you couldn't put all your filthy clothes into a machine and go and wash them up. You had mm. to spend an entire day rubbing the shit on a, on a board. And, and so I th- do you feel like regardless of where we are in the world and in history, like every generation kind of envies the former generation and is a bit shitty with them at the same time? You know, like that, you've got that kind of weird thing where you kind of go, oh, things were so much easier then because you know maybe you know everything was kind of cut and dry black and white oh yeah less choices means less confusion less people more resources that sort of stuff but at the same time you sit back and go i had five choices of martial art i could have studied as an eight-year-old yeah my mum and dad didn't even know asian people when they were you know what i mean like there's a weird what do you reckon adam you're looking at me so, you know, you've kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, 
I, th- I think they're going to look back on, on us and probably just think that we just used their inheritance on pot noodles. Mm. And that's probably not, they're not going to, they're not going to be that happy about it, are they? Hmm. I'm raising some pretty forgiving kids myself. Don't know about all you other people out there whose kids are looking at you with rage while you eat their ramen noodles. <laughs> I don't miss ramen noodles, though. Have you ever thought about the things that you would miss in, the, in, a, in a future that, uh, of want and need, Adam? Oh. Well, I mean, it, it's it, like, like Richard was saying in that interview, you look around and everything is made of petrol or has been or, or fossil fuels and has used it to get here mm. so that accounts for nearly <laughs> everything and i know of course we're not going to lose everything or we no. won't survive at all but um it's going to be a pretty radical future a couple of generations from now and we might still be alive then and mm. um definitely i'll tell you what washing machines the thing you mentioned of that that and the internet yeah hang on those things i hope we can uh keep forever and uh, pot noodles, uh, I guess I'd be willing to sacrifice them. If it I don't even to. really like pot noodle. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I went through a breakup recently with someone who I used to eat proper noodles with. So I can't eat real noodles at the moment. So I'm eating pot noodle because, as some uh, kind of like self-loathing thing. Of, uh, mm. yeah. I'll move back to real noodle soon. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's just been an interesting digression away from the heavy stuff. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.